Good morning. Welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. Um, this is episode eight, which is unbelievable. So eight poor people have had to talk to me for an hour, which is uh, good for me and not so good for them. But um, look, this is a fantastic episode. We're joined by uh, Michael Crawford. Michael is the CEO and one of the three co-founders of Describe Data. Describe Data as an analytics tool which helps um, underwriters and underwriting businesses uh, understand their data better, it utilizes AI and lots of other uh, clever technological advances um, basically helps people be more profitable. Um, they went through the Lloyd's Lab, um, really interesting journey. Uh, Michael's got a long insurance career um, and sort of sits on the two fences between technology, but also sort of deep understanding of maths and uh, started training as an actuary before, uh, made a very early leap into the technology world. And we hear a little bit more about that, but more importantly, we talk about startups and um, AI and the use of technology um, and innovation within big incumbent businesses. So we cover loads of ground here. This is interesting to anyone who's interested in SureTex, anyone who's interested in entrepreneurship. Um, there's some war stories here. There's tears in front of a computer and a laptop. Um, and Michael's kind of very kind of us to be very open and honest about that journey. So without further ado, Michael Crawford, Describe Data. Uh, good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast, uh, otherwise known as The Lip. Um, I'm your host, Alex Bond. Uh, lucky enough to be joined today by uh, Michael Crawford of Describe Data, not the bionic underwriter, um, as I kept trying to call it uh, desperately in my mind. Um, welcome, Michael. Thank you. Hello. Good morning. How are you, Alex? Yeah, very good. Very good. Thank you. And thanks for making the time. Um, I mean, I could talk about how it's a risk engine in, uh, engine, and it's used to kind of help underwriters create profit and reduce risk, but perhaps you can introduce Describe Data and, um, yeah, uh, give our listeners a sort of taste of what it's all about. Yeah, sure. Um, Describe Data is a, is a company that, that came out of um, uh, three people's consultancy experience. So we were doing an awful lot of work for the insurance industry and the data analytics side of things and the actuarial side. And we realized that we, you know, the, the industry was ripe for tools that basically employed technology and data in a much more um, cohesive way. Mm -hmm. And we looked around at what was going on in the market and we settled on specialty underwriting. We looked at specialty underwriting and realized, you know, there was an awful lot of very complex risk being analyzed with a lot of either kind of back of the envelope stuff or spreadsheets or substandard tools. And we realized that we could build a product our products that would allow underwriters and price, you know, pricing actuaries to build and do these jobs much more quickly. And we put um, a, uh, a, a, an idea together in the pre-seat and we used that to apply for the Lloyd's lab. Uh -huh. uh, we got into the Lloyd's lab and we spent this, the 10 weeks in the Lloyd lab building an MVP, which was an underwriting engine for specialty risk. And we actually specialized in DNO in the Lloyd's lab because it was a, a product that we could actually sell, solve in about 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. And out of that came basically, you know, the, the, the idea of our Comprino risk engine and, you know, and kind of, we were off to the races. And since then, we've basically been building out that MVP into a fully productionized product. Mm -hmm. And we're out at the moment starting to sell that back into the London and the US market. Oh, fantastic. So um, when, when were you in the Lloyd's lab? Was it three years ago? We or? were in the Lloyd's lab. We went in April of 2019. So April. So we're in the second cohort. Oh, okay. We fine. actually applied for the first cohort of the Lloyd's Lab, and you know, with literally, we were about six weeks old at the time, with an idea which took up about one one uh, A4 sheet of paper. And we thought, look, if we applied for the Lloyd's Lab, 
we probably won't get in. But in the meantime, it'll allow us to basically flesh out the idea, put legs on it, get feedback on where, you know, where the weaknesses are. And surprisingly enough, we literally just missed the cut. I think we came 11th out of 10 places oh, out wow. of the 300 people that applied. And we went, okay, look, you know, this was, you know, we've got a lot of experience and we know insurance quite well and we understand technology, but obviously if we're getting this close to the prize, you know, with, you know, effectively what was a very simple kind of very, very unfleshed out idea, we knew we had legs, it had legs. So when the second cohort came around, they asked us to reapply again and it was a no brainer. And you know, we kind of, we, we'd had six more months to work on it then. And we had a very, very good idea about what we wanted to do. And it was, I wouldn't say it was a formality, but it was, it was a lot easier of a sell the second time around. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, what was that? What I like the fact I didn't realize that they sort of stay in touch and things like that. Is it what, what's, what's it like that experience of kind of going into the Lloyd's lab? Um, because people go in at different sort of stages, don't they? You know, you you apply yeah. at a different stage and six months later you apply, so you're obviously at a better, different stage of progression. What how was that for you? Well, I mean, if you look at the you know, the, the Lloyd's lab, is, you know, it, very if you think about it, isn't has you know, it, it was a great idea. You know, Lloyd's thinking like, you know, we need to basically understand get get more innovation into this building and into this yes. market and how. And if you think about it, that's a very, you know, a relatively low cost, low risk thing for Lloyd's to do, mm-hmm. you know, because they're, you know, they're applying space and a bit of, you know, and expertise and, you know, crowdsourcing kind of uh, mentors from the market and stuff like that is meant to be very inclusive. They brought in, uh, you know, a great company, uh, which is L Marks to actually, you know, put some flesh around that. They brought in some external people like, uh, you know, Ed Gaze, who'd worked in consultancy to basically put, you know, to, to put some structure on it and run it properly. And they, you know, it, it has evolved from being, you know, if you look at the first couple of cohorts that we were in, there were a lot more kind of pure startups in it, people yeah. coming in with ideas and how that then engaged with the market and then the, how kind of how, how that kind of the traction those companies got, you know, to be honest was, you know, I think we were probably in the early, you know, the early stage of the Lloyd's lab where more young companies got in and what they saw the what they kind of saw i think was the companies that were a little bit more mature that had a you know a product and maybe one or two customers that were itching you know were talk, walking around the edges of the market got a lot more traction and a lot more feedback so they kind of you can see the sorts of companies that have gone through the lab have are changing and it's becoming they've kind of worked out what their business model is at the start i think they tried to disrupt the whole market from top to bottom and they realized actually no we kind of need to pick where where we're going to have the most effect so I'm not sure we'd get into the Lloyd's Lab, you know, at the stage we are at now, but we did. And it was, you know, it was the making of us, you know. Oh, fantastic. Was it, it's just, I mean, it must be amazing to have the room, particularly at the stage you were at, to kind of really put the, put it together and put the flesh on the idea and, and kind of make it happen. Yeah. The one thing the Lloyd's Lab gives you, I mean, it give, you know, it's a very adult accelerator program in many ways. They give you basically, here's the keys, here's a Lloyd's pass, here's your desk in the middle of the Lloyd's building. Knock yourself out, kid. There's, you know, uh, you'll have a mental meeting, you know, once or twice, you know, maybe every week where you've got six mentors who've self-selected from various companies. You know, we want something from you. We want a presentation in 10 weeks time off you. Not, you know, and that's, you know, there's no, there's no very little kind of, um, how do you say, structure on that. And that's a good thing, I think, because it allows you then to come in and use the kind of the infrastructure. One of the great things that we had, we used it to as a, as a basically a product market fit engine. We had a lot of ideas because we'd done an awful lot of work in consultancy. So we knew the sorts of things that would work with insurance companies in terms of using data and technology. What we weren't particularly sure of is how to present and aggregate those tools into a product. And what we did is we used the lab 
to crowdsource a, um, a kind of focus group of directors and officers, underwriters and underwriting, chief underwriting officers, and had meetings with them where we basically asked them, like, what, what are your big problems? What, mm -hmm. what are your big bugbears? What are you afraid of? You know, what makes you lose sleep at night? Those sorts of questions. And we went away and refined that into, first of all, we built a really, really down and dirty like one page app, which we showed people five weeks in. And then mm -hmm. at the end of the program, we basically built a much more kind of functional version of that, still MVP, that yeah. basically took in all the um, ideas that we, we crowdsourced and listened to people and basically said, look, the, this is the way you think about uh, the problem. Here's a lot of really useful tools that you probably don't know about and you don't understand because you're not, you're not technology people or data analytics people, but this is how you could use those tools to solve that problem. And we presented that. And we continued doing that after the lab. We, we, we used um, we used a kind of four or five months after the lab to, to actually talk to a lot more people and get a lot more feedback and refine that process. Yeah. Um, I think we had something like 100 meetings in 10 weeks in the Lloyd's lab. Wow. You know, you think about it, you know, there's like there's a lot, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of quite serious meetings. We yeah. wouldn't have got that anywhere else. I think we, we have a kind of soundbite that we used a couple of times. It's like we did about 18 months of business development in 10 weeks. You just... <laughs> You know, it's like drinking through a fire hose is another thing we kind of you know you just you we just grabbed every opportunity yeah fantastic i mean we we touched on this just before the recording started it, getting kind of insurance subject matter experts and i know i know and we'll we'll, we'll sort of go into your background i know that you have a quite an interesting mm -hmm. background but obviously been in the insurance market for for a long time in in, in various points but getting that subject matter expertise into uh, into your kind of business into an insure tech yeah. startup uh, seems to me essential and, and it seems to be the thing that sometimes people sort of struggle with you know you've got a great concept technology wise on insurance but um there's either a resistance to to bring in insurance uh, you know subject matter experts or kind of an inability to bring them in um or certainly it's one thing that i see is trying to bring them in cheaply when you're trying to pay for it and and you know yeah. i suppose lloyd's as you're saying, it gives you exposure to that and you're able to pull those people in and must be hugely valuable. It, I think it, it is. I mean, I've seen this along the course of my career because I started off training as an actuary and then got into IT more or less immediately, um, like my mid-20s and re retrained as a coder. And went through the whole apprenticeship, ended up working for people like Microsoft as well. I kind of moved mm -hmm. out of financial services and insurance into pure tech and then back into tech. And the one thing, you know, you kind of forget that in software, the industry is quite a young industry mm -hmm. and that whole engineering kind of mindset that, you know, has, you know, and, you know, traditional building engineers have figured out how to build things so, you know, they don't fall down um, by over-engineering and specking things well. Um, you know, you, you could see that and, you know, if you look at cathedrals used to fall down quite a lot in the Middle Ages and stuff like that, because they used to push the outside limits and there was no real plans and stuff like that. The engineers figured out that that, you know, that doesn't work. Software industry kind of figured that out as well over the last 20 or 30 years. But, you know, if you look at the 70s and 80s, when I kind of got into, you know, developing in the 80s, it was a lot less rigorous. And so likewise, so actually bringing those ideas into, into companies was actually difficult. And there were a lot of failures. Mm -hmm. Now, you saw that industry mature and understand that, you know, it had to talk to the people who had the problem and it had to basically plan and build differently to build successful software products and build them into industry. So there's, a, there's an issue there on the software side that it is quite immature and it's only maturing now. And the tools to get those kind of um, those techniques and products built efficiently and safely are just about, you know, are maturing. 
And on the flip side of that, there's no real, and especially in industries like insurance, there hasn't really been a tradition of you having to break that process down into atomic steps so you mm. could codify it. Unlike the manufacturing industries where they have things like, you know, Henry Ford, et cetera, did this, you know, in the 20s and 30s. Yeah. And that's a quite a diff difficult cognitive leap for the companies themselves to actually think, yeah. why do I have to sit here and tell you in minute detail what I do? It seems mm -hmm. like a waste of time. Mm -hmm. So there's two things going on there. Mm -hmm. And it's like there's a cultural shift that says, look, we have, we, we have to do this so we can build this safely. And, you know, we have to jump together. And that has taken a lot longer to come into insurance. I saw it coming into the, the P&C insurance and the life insurance over the 80s and 90s. Yeah. It's almost like been going back to that time when going back into the specialty insurance market, which is still quite, in many ways, you know, it's, there's a lot less technology involved. You're having to do that, that education piece again. So you do get some resistance of companies coming and saying, look, if I could, why, you know, why should I have to tell you what, you should just give me what I want rather than me have to tell you what I need. And the answer is you kind of have to do both. Yeah, it's it's like trying to ask a doctor to tell you what's wrong, but refusing to talk to yeah, them. There is a certain amount of like that. You tell me. And there's a kind of, well, you know, we're going to. And that's why we found that Lloyd's Lab was really good, because we could kind of come in with an idea and show them something yeah. and then tell them. It's very easy to say, what don't you like here? Because someone yeah. will always tell you why they hate it and then, and then not do that. Almost do the flip side of it. It's very it's much easier for you to actually show somebody something and tell them you know what you don't like and what you, like. you actually give them a framework to construct to give you an idea about what they really want but if you go in with a blank piece of paper and say look tell me what you want you're gonna you, 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 that's generally not the best place to start you know because you're just going to spend a lot of time spinning your wheels yeah yeah absolutely so you talked about your your team um and um well and we covered off you being an actuary so yeah well, i meant we we mentioned this when we spoke it's, it's quite an unusual move so go to the effort of training to be an actuary and then yeah. how long were you an actuary before you went? I, kind of, I got about two thirds of the way through my actuarial exams in my mid twenties and really kind of woke up one day and realized that it's not what I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, I just realized it just, you know, it seemed like I did maths in college and, you know, it's a good, it was, a, you know, it's a logical step. And I just realized that I, you know, I fundamentally realized, and this is probably in the late eighties, early nineties, that I just much preferred engineering. Yeah. And it wasn't actually on the, it was, it was something that wasn't on the actuarial career track. The actuarial career track was go and work in all parts of an insurance company, you know, going and working in the pricing side and the reserving side, you know, and then basically you will be, you know, you get, you end up on the board or you end up CEO and that, that career track changed an awful lot. You know, you see a lot mm -hmm. less CEOs as actuaries now. Yes. Um, but what was definitely wasn't on the, on the, the career track for an actuary was IT, you know, and tech. It's, and people thought it was career suicide at the time, but I realized, look, I, you know, I have to skip to work every day. So um, I just basically made a big leap and decided to um, just completely change. At the end of the 90s, as I was doing that, when I kind of did that full time, because I, I, there was an awful lot of work around. Uh, people were having to rewrite all their quotation platforms for Y2K. Mm -hmm. And I set up a business doing that. And it was really, you know, for the three or four years that, it, you know, we, we were in business because it kind of tailed off after after kind of like 2001. Yeah. It was very, very successful. And that's effectively where I learned my craft, mm -hmm. how to write software, how to write software at scale, how to write software for money on time and on budget, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Again, having the domain knowledge of, you know, tech and IT and especially a lot of the systems we were writing were highly technical, complex mathematical quotation systems, especially on the life and pension side where there's a lot of uh, financial math. You know, it was a real education. Yeah, 
yeah so yeah so because this is not your first startup is it that's that's something important to cover off you've um... yeah i mean after that i was involved in uh, i did a lot of contract work for people and then i was involved in a startup which was we we built an online brokerage um for insurance products and financial products in general now this is back in t- just after the dot com we all got I got involved in the dot-com boom and that I was involved with a financial products company and that basically imploded spectacularly. Uh, that was an absolutely brilliant. I always call that my real world MBA because it was, <laughs> it was, um, you know, it was about, you got, you got the, the learnings of an MBA at only about five to 10 times the cost. Um, uh, but you learn to, you know, those sorts of lessons you learn when you're, you know, you're crying on your knees in front of a web server in a freezing cold colo facility at two in the morning. <laughs> don't get those sort of um, lessons kind of like, you know, in a, in a classroom. Um, and from out of that, what happened was after the dot-com crash, um, a gang of us who'd worked in various, various different industries, telcos, et cetera, realized, you know, was it still a good idea? And we, we kind of scaled the idea down and built an affinity-based um, financial services product that was basically online. So we plugged into a lot of um, corporate intranets, which were just starting to basically be used in big companies like Oracle in Dublin and you know, PwC and the health service over here. And we sold, we basically went to the banks and insurance companies and said, look, we've got 60,000, 100,000 people on our books. In, who are all highly paid, they're working for Intel, they're working for Oracle, they're working for Vodafone, they've got serious jobs. We want a, a best in, uh, we want a best in kind of league product for a mortgage. We want a best, a best in um, line product for car insurance with serious discounts for our membership. And we put everything on one website, which was quite simple, um, but it was a lot of functionality for quoting and then punched it into corporate, corporate internet. And that absolutely took off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it worked. We'd scaled down the idea. We used technology in a different way. We engaged with the financial services companies. One, the, the company ended up being bought by one of the biggest um, insurance companies in Ireland. Um, just, unfortunately, after I'd left, but you know, right. there you go. Um, so, you know, it was an idea. So that was, and then working with three, kind of, I was working with two very good uh, business guys. One guy was on the financial sales guy, product guy, and the other guy was a pure marketing ex-Diageo guy. Mm-hmm. And that was, a, and I was the CTO, you know, I basically built everything ourselves, including the laptops, the computers, the firewalls, because we had no money. Right. And um, that was, you know, we built it, we built it literally Robinson Crusoe style for very little money and it worked, it was, but it was a real education, you know? Mm-hmm. So you learn that kind of, you know, there, there, is a, there is a certain craft or kind of, um, I wouldn't say kind of apprenticeship that running, you know, working for yourself and doing startups really, really is very useful. I would always encourage people to do it yeah. You know, um, and because you'll always get a job, you'll never starve to death. And the, the skill set it gives you and the resilience it gives you is amazing. Mm. Do you think that's specific as well to, um, you know, you and I have talked previously about um, about investment. Um, I, I think it's really important to, to at least have that experience of, of doing it on a shoestring and bootstrapping it, you know, be, being in the weeds and, and building it together. Whether you go out and get investment is is irrelevant. And at some point, investment's inevitable if, if you want it to fly. But I think not just important enough to start a startup. You can go and work at a startup, but if you work at a startup that's been given a few, you know, 100 million quid to start with, it's, it's not quite the same thing, right? Yeah, we see that. You can see that, see that the, two, the two models, we kind of call this the European model versus the American model. Yeah. And the American model, you know, facetiously is like, you know, you, you have an idea, you go and raise $5 million and you basically, you know, source a team and you buy a foosball table and a dog and you basically come <laughs> on and you basically build an MVP and you're off to the races. 
And then the European side is more kind of almost what we've done, which is you have an idea and then you basically bootstrap it, uh, uh, you know, in a crazy manner and you build, you know, and uh, you build everything yourself and it, everything takes twice as long. And, you know, you, you have all those problems. And there's a lot to be said for both. You know, what we're seeing with a lot of VCs now is they love that kind of European sensibility with that American kind of ambition. They yeah. love something in the middle. And that's kind of what we've, you know, we've kind of crowdsourced this ourselves um, and bootstrapped our own businesses because we, first of all, we, we more or less have to validate the idea to start off with. You know, is, you know, is the product, we, we, we understand the product, you know, the product is probably, is going to be needed. But there's also, when you're doing something new in technology, there's that kind of, there's that why now question. Mm-hmm. Why you know, technology can do this. Why are people going to buy it now? Why is their hair on fire enough to want to change what they're doing at the moment? So it's all well and good um, doing something, you know, magical and, um, uh, you know, and, and innovative if no one wants to buy it. And we had that experience with one of our first ideas was to look at terrorism and global kidnap risk. And we've done some quite interesting work on it, put a very quick MVP together. People loved it, but they were like, yeah, there's a gap in the market, here, but there's no market in the gap. So you kind of have to, having validated that idea and made the technology, that's a very useful way. Then you kind of need then the classic thing would probably to be looking for some, you know, a small amount of money and not just pure money, money that comes smart money, money that comes in from people in the industry. You know, we're, we're looking at raising a friends and family round of, you know, seed round probably in the next you know, few months. And the people we're talking to are people that we talk to in the Lloyd's lab. There are, you know, people with, you know, Enterprise Island, you know, have been very, very good, good to us. They will back us and they have a massive amount of infrastructure. And, you know, they're helping us and introducing us to people in London in insurance and in banking along the way. So they come, it's money that comes with extra things attached. Yeah. And then the VC model that is very good after that is like, right, we now we need to scale this. We need to pour on the rocket fuel. And that's where, you know, pure VC money is really, really useful mm-hmm. and probably has the most effect. You see a lot of people taking money very early and the VC, you know, that could actually be invidious or probably, you know, probably not great for a small company. It could, it could upset the, the, the dynamics of what needs to be done because mm-hmm. the metrics are probably wrong. They're looking for pure return on capital, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, you might actually be looking for return of capital, you know, might, might actually be a problem rather than a return on it. So, yeah. yeah, there are lots of there are lots of pros and cons. And I think that some people take a lot of money too early. And I think, you know, some people don't take money when they should take money. Yeah. And I think we're at the stage now where we know we've kind of resisted taking money until now. Now we kind of know we have problems that money can solve. Yeah. Whereas now yeah. before we didn't, we kind of had, we had business problems like who wants to buy this? How much will they pay for it? You know, mm-hmm. will they buy it again next year? Mm-hmm. That sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, timing, I think, appears to be the thing. And, and absolutely, like how smart or not is it? I, th- I think I think when we talk about kind of investment, quite often we focus purely on the money side of it. But yeah, what does it bring? What contacts do they have? What 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 time frame do they do these people work to? Um, yeah. You know, if you so, get the wrong investor, yeah. if you get the wrong investor on your board or, you know, with the wrong at the wrong time, it can be absolutely toxic. There's a classic email that's gone around recently of a guy who uh, basically uh, retired as the kind of CEO and board member. I think it's a circle. Um, I can't remember the exact, and it's, you know, he basically sent this excoriating uh, kind of exit email to one of his investors on his board. And it's, you know, it's, it's eye-watering to read. You know? <laughs> I'll have to seek that out. We'll put, we'll put a link. That'll be, that'll be, that'll be out there. So, uh, sorry, you keep, you keep talking about we, so we've got to talk about the team. So how big is the business now? Is it five people you're at? We have, um, there are, I mean, there are three co-founders and we have a technology, a pure technology guy who's not a founder, but he's coming on board as our CTO. Uh-huh. Um, he's, you know, we, we, we work out of a, um, a 
kind of a high kind of tech um, incubator space in the city center of Dublin. So that's been incredible for marketing resources, um, tech resources. It's, you know, it's backed by Google. So we've been very lucky that we've been managing to keep the, the core team down to a very few people as possible and then pull in world-class people when, 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 you know, um, design people, tech people, you know, we're, at the moment we're dealing with a, um, a couple of people who are, who are revamping all our, uh, Kind of collateral, our marketing collateral, our decks, our sales deck, our investor decks, our one pages, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we we managed to keep that. That's the whole kind of lean, the lean kind of like set bootstrap startup. You know, we are technically three to four people full time with a core group of people around that that we pull in when we can. You know, and the great thing about you know doing out of a, out of out of a startup tech center is like Google have given us a lot of free tech. You know, a lot of pure money in terms of free compute, massive amounts of mentoring. Um, you know, with a core team of people who have worked in tech and finance. So they've introduced us to like, you know, people running insurance companies all over Europe who've spoken to us about their needs and stuff like that. So you can be very, very clever about, you know, um, you, rather than scoring on a hiring spree, you can basically keep that down to as minimum as possible. Yeah. You know, we'd like to be in the position to hire probably next year. And the next couple of people are going to be pure tech and pure sales. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's so much out there as well to support that. Um, you know, I, I lived in Brighton for a long time. Brighton's got a really good sort of innovation lab, uh, lab and support yeah. there. And and you can plug yourself into these things. And and even as someone that works in recruitment, I, I sat in one because I like the energy of it. And um, yeah, know, the energy's great. Yeah, yeah exactly. And and that's you know that's that's the thing that people don't talk about enough is that yeah it's it's hard right getting getting something off the ground and like you say you're bootstrapping it <laughs> i like your yeah, the flip side, flip side that is that people you know we, we you know the, the, that's a great community and it's a very give and take community so as much as we take from it we give to it i mean we're kind of probably very much the elder statesman in there and we as you know we've got a lot of war wounds so you know people come and ask us like you know i've got I mean, one of my one of my co-founders jerry was the vice president uh you know vp of of, uh, of infrastructure for renaissance re for a long time so you know he's mm. he's got a lot of corporate experience dealing with corporates and being you know uh, dealing with you know staff and staff issues and you know scaling teams and building teams so people used to come up and just ask us questions daily about how to do you know, how would you probably you know, solve this problem how would i go about hiring a technical team you know yeah. would you hire it here or you know or in portugal and you know so they, that, those that we get we get we kind of get them for like come and work on our serverless infrastructure and they ask us questions like you know how do i hire a remote team or how do i incentivize or deal with a very difficult employee and stuff like that yeah. so it's kind of a give and take you know yeah yeah no i used to get that i was i was always the, i won't lie i was always the unwelcome guy in the room because as soon as you say you work in recruitment everyone sort of seems to part but but then you'd get a quiet, quiet knock on your desk and someone go, I'm trying to hire. I don't want to pay too much and, you know, and yeah. have all those questions. But no, but I love the energy of those things. And, and there's so much free resource out there. And I think people don't, they're not aware of that. Um, how did you and your founders, um, did you, are you ex-colleagues? Did you work together in the past? Is that how you came oh, to that, that's that's a story. I mean, I mean, technically, the founding myth of, of described data is that we were sitting, you know, we there's a gang of us that were all kind of were very, very close together. And we all had this kind of amorphous group of meetings in a, 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 a very old pub in the city centre of Dublin in the Snook. And yeah. because we, we'd meet there every Friday and we, we, we'd sat down, myself, Jerry and Mick, we'd known each other for a long time. I've known Jerry since I was a kid. We started working together in our first jobs. Mick, the, um, he was a trainee, Deep Cobell developer and I was a trainee actuary, as, you know, and literally in our teens. Um, 
my other co-founder, Michael, is a, a data scientist, um, but he comes from a hedge fund background. He's a, a you know, he's a physics, theoretical physics background, you know, high performance computing and a PhD in quant finance. Um, he also runs one of the biggest um, and most successful data science meetup groups in Ireland. And I started going to it about seven or eight years ago when data science was like, no one had heard of it, but I kind of realized it was a new, new thing. And so we all kind of coalesced together and we became very good friends. We were sitting in the pub one night, myself and Mick were saying, look, you know, we're doing all this work um, to do for insurance companies on a, on a piecemeal basis. We're getting projects. And Jerry, with his uh, just taken, you know, um, re redundancy from Renry was like, you know, you've got a product there. So, and then, you know, the product idea was, and then the Lloyd's Lab came up, the first low cohort of the Lloyd's Lab, and we thought, let's just give this a rattle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, I mean, it's, you know, it's a typical Irish founding story. You know, we were sitting there <laughs> really good pints of Guinness going, you know, you two have got a good idea. I think we could put a product wrap around that. Here's a, here's a kind of, here's a kind of a, 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 an innovation program that will either prove or disprove whether we have that idea or not. It'll take us a few days to basically flesh this out and apply. Let's give it, let's, let's give it a rattle. And that's basically how we started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's probably, a, you know, and that's probably the ideal way of doing it. You know, we kind of, it kind of came out of, you know, three people who've known each other a long time, respected each other with very different skill sets. Yeah. Um, thinking, right, how do we, you know, you know, well, and our idea was let's, let's moneyball underwriting of specialty lines. Because mm. it's you know it's it's not really being done at the moment, and the data's out there. Unfortunately, the data is very very hard to get a hold of, mm. very hard to understand and interpret, and very hard to present to people. And that was exactly what our sweet spot was: doing those three things. Yeah, yeah. I you know it's it's not um, it's it's funny. I always love to ask how the founders have met because it's always it's never some linear pathway. It's not like you know because there are there are obviously those platforms out there. Um, and founders first is a really good example of. Yeah, you know they get talented people in a room and, and try and sort of pitch them together, and um, that's almost like the pop stars' way of making a band, right? But the best way of making a band is we met down the pub and we all get on and we sing the same songs, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we, you know, we, we, you know, we've we've been through, and you know, at the start of the business, you know, we actually had, um, you know, we had a, a small consultancy firm, and we had quite you know, three or four different founders and co-founders because we were more of a partnership model. And, you know, they, those people have kind of evolved and come and gone. And pure product company though, is, you know, it's described data. Um, we, um, you know, it's myself, Jerry and Mick, and then we kind of come up, but it has been, it definitely hasn't been a linear path. And no. it definitely hasn't been, you know, the, everyone always, always kind of tells a very succinct story about how they founded their company, but it's never, you know, you know, well, you know, it's like, you know, it's, you, they, it starts a long time ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? Yeah, it's interesting what you said about you've all got different skills as well. Do you think that's important to kind of making a, a startup work? Because you you don't don't fight on each other's kind of battleground, as it were. You know, you know that you're the domain expert for some area. I don't I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very important. Like Mick, who's our CTO, you know, is effectively our CTO, CDO, chief data guy, um, is a pure, absolute, amazing. Um, data analyst and data technician. He's just a pure genius. The stuff that he can do is terrifying. And I have no, I mean, I can audit his work and I can understand the stuff that he does. Yeah. I have no, you know, we do, um, we have no, um, I have no say in whether it's right or wrong in many ways. He, mm -hmm. And what we've done to combat that in many, in, is we've all made ourselves go off and get own, our own adult supervision. Mm -hmm. So he has a mentor who is an ex-Goldman Sachs trader 
physicist guy who, you know, we basically, I have a, some, someone very similar and Jerry has someone very, very similar. And we have an overarching chairperson of our board who is an ex-Enterprise Island uh, woman uh, from, a fintech uh, woman from, uh, with years of experience in this, who is basically, you know, who basically holds our feet to the coals every, every two weeks we have a meetup. So you do need to have very, very disparate skill sets to overlap slightly. And you do need to put in place mechanisms to make sure that that's there is some constraints put on that. We call it adult supervision. You know, yeah, you, yeah. you are not just like saying stuff because you think it's right. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's very important because a lot of people will say, if, you know, if you know, if, I, if Jerry said to me the sky is orange and in his domain, I'd have no way of telling really mm-hmm. whether he's pulling the, you know, he's misguided or he's, you know, he's, he's you know. Uh, so we've, we've, we kind of put that, we put that kind of uh, almost kind of a, a belt and braces kind of uh, structure around the company to ensure that bad decisions get called very, very quickly and changed, mm. you know. But that's, I think it's very important as well that you also have a healthy degree of respect for each other, mm. but you also have a healthy degree of, I wouldn't say confrontation, but there's a healthy degree of um, you definitely don't need to be agreeing with each other all the time. You do need some kind of, you know, I don't think you're right. You need and be able to find to find to reach a consensus to make decisions because they're always the best ones. Where you've yeah. all, you know, the, the decisions that have been made, you know, after you've had a, a you know, a, an argument with your co-founders and had to change three or four things to make yeah. it better, are yeah. the much more strong and you know, uh, the stronger decisions that get made. Yeah, because you need the ideas to be challenged so they're robust, right? So you know, and it's yeah. about. I always think one of the skills that I would say that people need at the starting stage is the ability to change and be and be willing to change. Um, because a friend of mine's talking about a startup at the moment, and even just down to the formation and the ten-year plan, five-year plan, and and you know they were going, oh, we just want to get on it. Is that not important? And my sort of discussion with them, I said, look, have a lot of the arguments now. Because if you have the arguments now, then you sort of get to a get to a place that you're happy with. But but what you can't do is just because essentially it was coming from a place that they were unhappy about certain things that were been put in place. And I mean, they're not yeah. going to go away. Um, it doesn't mean that they, it's going to change to your will. But you need to discuss them every night. Everyone kind of can challenge them. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think the ability to challenge is incredibly important. But it, it also speaks to the type of person you are to make it successful. Because you can't be someone that's so fragile that if your idea gets challenged, you are, you know, you're going to react in a sort of overly negative way. Um, well, throw your toys out of the pram and walk off, you know, because you're going to have some, if you're involved in a startup, there are going to be some great times. But the real test of the strength and resilience of the company is hard times. Times like now, I mean, I'm not, the last seven or eight months since mid-March have been, you know, the companies that survive this, play to them you know yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's been absolutely horrendous yeah you know you know we and we've you know we kind of rec- having been through some hard times before we recognized it very very early on and we kind of made some really really binary hard you know saw your leg off decisions in mid-march mm. you know nail the checkbook to the table this is what we're doing this is this is this is the absolute priority for the next three six months you know yeah. and it's survival you yeah. know at any cost yeah. um and you know, the companies that aren't able to make those decisions quickly in a, in a safe environment, row in behind that decision that's being made and execute it, are bunched. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that's, that's very true. That's very true. How has, how has the last kind of, you know, six, seven, eight months? <laughs> well, it's been, I mean, we've, we, it's actually been a lot. 
if you'd asked me that question in March, I'd have probably just gone away and hidden under my desk for an hour. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I knew what was coming. You know, we we did a we did a very quick kind of straw poll of we had a couple of really um, nailed on companies that were about to start work with us, and they just stopped. You know, they just couldn't even answer the phones for you know for the for six weeks because I knew it was completely understandable. We were about to we were just we were about to raise a certain amount of money. We we started to put that in place, and we talked to a lot of VC companies that. Um, because of the, the where we work in the the, uh, the startup incubator, there's a lot of VC money and a lot of VC, friendly VCs around. Talk to people that we knew quite well, people like Eamon Carey, who's involved in textiles in London. And he said, look, you know, everyone's going to tell you they're open for business, but you know, forget about it. You know, they're just going to try and keep the companies they've invested in alive. My advice to you guys is basically just nail down the batten down the hatches and do everything you can to to uh, to stay alive. And that's effectively what we did. We we were about to raise money to build the product, the production version of the product. We realized that we um, weren't going to be able to do that. Or it would just be a waste of our time trying to put that business plan or those, those, that investor documentation together. And we just said, right, we have the technical skills to do this ourselves. We've got a lot of help from Google. And we hired the best infrastructure guy that we could hire, who is a friend of ours that we know from. He'd just come out of another tech company in the startup space that we were working in. And we basically made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And we spent the last five, the next five months building. The three of us literally just built everything from scratch ourselves. And that was basically, the idea was not ideal, but it was forced on us. And we were in the fortunate position to be able to do that. And what has happened on the start of that, we kind of came out of kind of stealth, probably mid to late July, maybe early August, and started showing people what we'd built. Um, we showed maybe five or 10 people you know, the infrastructure and the, and the kind of front end that we'd built on top of our risk engine took a lot of their criticisms and advice on board, re rejigged all of that. And then we've been slowly but surely introducing that product to people probably since mid-September. Yeah. So we used the opportunity in the best way, I would say opportunity, you know, the, um, in the best way we could. And we basically used it to build build our own product. And it was quite, and we all reconfigured the company around it. Jerry, our, our COO became the project manager. You know, I became, I became the front end developer um, I taught myself Node and Material UI and built a, you know, I, you know, I've a, I've a, I've a potential career as a UX developer if this all goes badly wrong. I think. <laughs> uh, and you know, you know, on the data side, Mick basically built out the models, and we basically built our own massive data store. We did a deal with BVD to bring in all their data. Uh, we did a, a great deal, um, a research partnership with Stanford University to bring in all their corporate actions data. And uh, we, you know, and we basically used Google and the money they've given us to build this incredible serverless scalable infrastructure in the cloud. And now we built that and it works. And, you know, mm. we haven't effectively, we've done it without any investment. Yeah. Now it slowed us down. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, you know, it slowed, and there was no, there was nothing else going on for those five months. So. Mm. Well, that's what I was going to say is that the, the, the massive irony is that, is that yeah you were going to go out for investment didn't you had to build it yourself but but you all once you built something yourself we know you're in a stronger position when you want to go and get some investment uh, I, I pity anyone who does tech due diligence with us because it's like you know every single bit we wrote every single bit yeah you know, it's like someone we built our own pyramid yeah you know <laughs> it's like so we you know it's it's you know you just your eyes would start bleeding after about half an hour i think if you started talking to us about it yeah. <laughs> I, w I won't get into that it's definitely outside, outside no, it's not. this is not this is a different podcast yeah yeah i wanted to talk to you about um ai and, and, and uh, yeah. because ai is obviously something that kind of uh, is applicable to your product and and, and what yeah. you're looking to do um 
how 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 is it involved in your product and 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 also kind of I wanted to sort of talk, talk generally about your experience of kind of people utilizing AI in in, in insurance because it seems like a natural marriage of uh, yeah. yeah I mean I've thought this for years I mean I mean I remember uh, I I took about four or five years off um, in, in about 2009 when the financial crisis hit the island I uh, myself and my wife had a couple of businesses and we realized that they were going to be um, the next four or five years were going to be horrendous yeah. and we had a small kid and we'd worked you know 100 hours a week between the two of us you know each hadn't seen much had much of a family life so we, we took about we went to Spain for a year in 20, early 2009 and didn't come back until 2013 mm-hmm. uh, end up living in Barcelona and just literally took a sabbatical you know we'd worked constantly for the previous 20 years and had a kid who was three or four um, I kind of spent a lot of time when I was there retraining, learning a lot of maths, learning a lot of tech and stuff like that. And I had an idea that, you know, machine learning and tech were going to basically be very important going forwards. Mm-hmm. If you remember coming as an actuarial, you know, from an actuarial background up to that, you know, up to that stage, even though I was involved in it, it was very much a, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't front and center. It was very much a cost center rather than a profit center. Yeah. And um, that I kind of realized very quickly when I got back in 2013, I started going to meetup groups, which were big, you know, it started to be big. And one of them was Dublin R and was, Dublin R was actually founded and run by um, Mick Cooney, who's one of the co-founders. Mm-hmm. And about 10 minutes into the first talk, I realized this stuff is going to absolutely go through insurance like a hot knife through butter. Mm-hmm. And I was probably about five years too early. Yeah. You know, it took a long time. We, we, I set up a data analytics consultancy almost immediately when I came back with another guy I met at that meetup group. And we got various bits of work from insurance companies and did relatively well, not super well, but it was a constant battle of just going into companies and realizing that they had the data, but they didn't really need to do anything about it. Mm. Slowly but surely realized that data analytics and machine learning and latterly AI, which is probably only the last couple of years, which is almost the, the next iteration of machine learning, yeah. ha, you know, was slowly but surely going to make inroads into insurance companies. But there was a massive adoption. The adoption, you know, the, the classic adoption curve for technologies kind of looks like this kind of hysteresis curve where you basically mm-hmm. people, you get a small amount of early adopters and then it, it chunks up and then it kind of runs very, very quickly. You get the kind of late adopters. And for AI and machine learning, in the insurance industry, we're still in the bottom left of that curve. We're sure. still at the early adopter space, mm-hmm. and it's slowly it's knocking on the door of it's going to become mainstream. And you can see it, but it's now quite. But that, now it's now 2020. You know, we started this. You know, looking at this sort of stuff in 2013. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's cool. Seven years ago, you know, the technology's moved on massively. The computing power has moved on incredibly. Uh, the software is is absolutely, you know, and the use of that software is and how you use it, it's got a lot better. So it's an absolute poster child for, you know, for being used in insurance. Mm. The issues that the insurance industry have is that traditionally it hasn't really used a lot of its data in those ways. So it's actually quite hard to get at within insurance companies and they haven't been used to collecting it at scale. Mm-hmm. And that's something that they're having to change and scramble to change. So that's why it hasn't been almost kind of like, I thought there was going to be a kind of like, this is a no brainer. Everyone's going to open their doors and embrace us with open arms. And we're going to skip, you know, coalesce into a big ball of happiness. And we're going to skip off into the distance, you know, like, and it's been almost, I wouldn't say it's been a very, very slow process of embracing, embracing IT technology and data. Mm. Why do you think, is it, is that, is that cultural or is it, you know, because the element you've got these big successful insurance companies and they're, they're successful in using their data the, the way they've always used it. So I suppose, yeah. 
it's it's to look at it other than what would be i imagine a very significant investment in capital because it would be changing in the way that they collect data changing the way they process hiring new people i mean oh, yeah. we're seeing I mean, we're seeing that it's it, it's a huge investment um what, what's what's been the sort of key thing that you think people are not pushing ahead with it for i, I think you know legacy um and technical debt yeah. one big issue and one of the things you really you end up talking to quite senior people in the industry which we've done via the, you know we've got a lot of access via the lloyd's lab the one thing you hear on the flip side is from you know people who've implemented technologies like they have had they've done they've either it's been a disaster as in you know and that's that cognitive like a load of data scientists you know are 25 straight out of college coming in going hey we've got all the tools and then you know meeting an industry that's 300 years old going you know and they, they, everyone, and just and thinking, these people underestimating the complexity, and those people under basically under on the other side, thinking, okay, this is a data science machine. I press the red button on the top, and money falls out the bottom. So mm-hmm. that that goes very much back to the bottom of what we were saying about how do you get technology into companies? You have this, this, that middle bit where you have to basically find out what the needs and where the big wins are. Yeah. That's that, that's very very that's been tricky. There's also a lot of experience when you talk get down to the, the kind of the second order things that so people have done this and they've had they've made great strides in it but it's very hard to scale these kind of things and put this stuff into production in big companies you mm. can do something where you save 10 million quid you know but if you, you know 10 million quid is not going to move the needle at someone like aig or liberty mutual or you know or you know or you know say you know score um you want to be like right, i need to make i need to basically do this at scale and save 100 million quid yeah and that's really tricky yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's where you, your traditional kind of project management IT stuff is very, very different. So yeah, that's there are lots and lots of the, it's not it's not that that kind of what what looks like a you know a plain sailing you know is actually a quite a difficult path to trot. It's a bit of a minefield. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of reasons, and they're not you know they're not and they're not sexy. Um, mm-hmm. They're just hard, painful, take time, but it will happen. You know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's no, my, my, there's no, there's the the costs are too low. You saw what's happened in the financial services industry for, for companies like you know, on the fintech side, on the banking side. You know, that would be a good model for the insurance industry to look at. Ten years ago, no one had heard of Revolut, and you know, mm. now everyone's heard of N26, Revolut, Starling, Monzo. Yeah. You know, yeah. and the the those companies are going to come out of the London market. A lot of them, a lot of them are going to come out of the square mile. They're going to come out of Instech London. You know, we used to see people like Marshmallow, the two guys that just took 30 million quid for 10% of their companies. They have two twins that, you know, used to meet regularly at Instech. You know, I saw Coover pitch when they were weeks old, you know, yeah. and they were like, we've got this idea for car insurance by the hour. And, you know, look at them now, you know, that was mm. five years ago. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, that's why I was kind of baffled by, I almost think with some of the big incumbents, they'd be better off kind of creating a parallel business, which they invest in with the long-term view that, you know, it's a pure, you know, digitally native, you know, it uses all the kind of latest tools and techniques for looking at data, utilizing kind of their product knowledge or their kind of area of expertise and just starting it afresh with the view that eventually it probably overtakes the parent. Um, But I just wonder about, you know, a lot of these companies are publicly traded companies, it goes back to almost back to that investment idea that if you're a publicly traded company, you've got to make, you've got to look about your share price. You've got to deliver kind of value to your shareholders and, and making a kind of 10 year, 20 year plan um, and investing heavily in that sometimes is very, very challenging. So, you know, lots of 
Yeah, exactly. So culturally, that can be very difficult in a big company, having worked for a lot of big companies, you know, especially, you know, companies, you know, these companies are quite, you know, they're not there. I don't think they've reached that kind of Kodak moment yet. You know, that kind of the hair on fire moment. No. And that is a certain amount of, there's a certain amount of, I think, to a degree in a lot of industries when you see how technology change comes in. You know, there's a great, I'm doing a talk in, for a big reinsurer in Ireland in a couple of weeks on innovation. And one of the things I was looking at, I found a, a cover of, uh, about this, I found a cover of Forbes from October 2007 with the head of you know, the, the CEO of Nokia on board, and it says like one million customers. Who can stop the Nokia behemoth? <laughs> you know, one billion customers, you know, and it's like, and it's like this was October 2007. The iPhone was released in just the end of June that year. Wow. You know, you know yeah. who, you know that, and that war was lost by 2013. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. It's just, so you kind of you, people forget. You know, uh, five years is a long time in tech. Yeah. It's, but it's, you know, it's like a, it's not a long time for an insurance company, especially a traditional insurance company that, you know, traditionally probably thinks in years mm -hmm. to, you know, one of the classic quotes I remember from when, uh, uh, I think it was the Agnelli's bought Partnery, you know, someone said, oh, now we can, someone, one of the people I know said, now we can start thinking in quarters, quarter centuries, <laughs> because it was private money with a long-term view. And if you think of an insurance company like Partnery, which is a life insurance company, that actually makes sense. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting about timescales, and certainly, um, you know, I was sharing a, um, an unknown, un unnamed company, but you know, who were going to enter. They were a tech company entering the insurance market, and as I was telling you, it was, it was really interesting because they asked for the advice on how they should launch this insurance product, and essentially were, were dictating that it wasn't quick enough um, because yeah. the mindset is is yeah is MVP. It's like, right, we'll get something going, we'll do it as quick as possible, and then we'll kind of, you know, evolve that product as we go. Um, and that's that's not the culture of insurance. You know, you don't you don't you don't create a product and then kind of learn as you go because it's too expensive. <laughs> also, you know, the regulatory burdens do not allow that for a start. The regulatory oversight. So there's a certain amount. Well, the sandbox has done something to to basically ameliorate that. You know, in in the UK, mm. and to a certain degree. Insurance is almost in the perfect storm, and that you actually probably and banking is probably a bit similar, like retail banking. You don't want those types of people running your pillar one banks and your pillar insurance. You yeah. want people that you don't want to sit next to at a dinner party because they're the right people for that job. Like it sounds, you know, I have a friend of mine who's a pilot, you know, and she is the most level-headed, sound person you will ever meet. She's exactly the right person to be a pilot. <laughs> She's brilliant, you know. I mean, you think, ah, oh, you know, you sleep, you get on the plane, she hears she's flying, you're like, ah, oh, great, you know, you know. But that, you know, you don't want someone who goes parachuting at the weekend, you know, and caving and stuff. You know, yeah. you know. funny, funny enough, I, I, uh, my, my ex-partner was, um, was scared of flying, and, and EasyJet do this uh, fear of flying course, and it's quite good. It's like a two-day thing. You go, and there's a, there's a there's a pilot and they literally talk you through the mechanics of a plane they talk you about the engineering principles and then it culminates with the most depressing flight you've ever taken because you get you you go set up a luton airport and your ticket says from luton to luton and and you literally take off do like half an hour and come it down and then they bring this pilot out to um talk you through on the plane so he's in the he's in the cabin with you and he talks you through the plane and 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 the guy walks in and he's like six foot three he's about 60 he's got a fantastic handlebar moustache he's like he did 25 voice, years like oil just like this conny yeah. voice you know he, he did he did 25 years in the ref and he'd been a commercial pilot for 15 years and i was like if every pilot walked on looking like that no one'd be scared yeah. of flying yeah. <laughs> this was your guy you know um 
But no, I think, I think just, no, sorry, go yeah, on. There is that. There is that issue, you know, with, you know, that maybe, you know, the companies that actually, you know, having to need to innovate it are probably not culturally, you know, almost engineered not to have that built into them. Yeah. And that's an issue because, you know, um, and we could be having this conversation in, in, you know, in, you know, in, you know, in 10 years time where, you know, companies like Revolut have taken over and then, you know, have, have you know, spectacularly, you know, blown up and caused the next financial crisis. Yeah. You know, because, you know, the, you know, classic regulation is, you know, they're always fighting the last war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, the insurance industry is it's very robust, and you, you've got to look at it from from you know what's what's been going on. Um, you know, in mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, we 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 it's built to think about the worst case scenario, right? And 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 so generally, it's yeah. and and it has and, you, and not to be thought of until you actually need you know never you know. So there is a whole. There's, it is quite. It's quite. Uh, it is quite a different interest industry to banking, and that the rewards you know slightly different. The risk reward ratio is is is. is it's done slightly differently, but you also have, um, uh, you know, I suppose with you know with the um, kind of the, the the tech companies coming in. We're going back to you know this is the whole you know we're coming in to change you know we're coming in to change this industry. You know we've got tech. We've you know we've done an MBA. We worked in Google. You know insurance. How difficult could it be? And is that and is that well we've been here three hundred years and we've seen like you know many wars, recessions that you wouldn't even believe. You know mm. we've just you know we've we've been through all and we're still here. So we must be doing something right. Yeah, yeah. There is that resilience in there. I mean, the classic Lloyds, you know, having worked inside Lloyds, you know, it's very anachronistic. But the fact that the way it works is that it, it basically spreads risk around mm -hmm. very, very well has been an absolute boon for the last 300 years and allowed things to do trade, you know, to across the globe to basically expand because it was the backstop, because it managed to spread that risk around. So there's a lot to be said, you know, you've got to have that yin and yang, you know, and that's why we see a lot of technology companies coming in going, you know, this is, this is, this is an easy win. And a lot of, a lot of insurance companies going like, we don't need technology. And the answer is you're both wrong. The answer, the truth is right in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's been fascinating speaking to quite a few insure techs recently and, and, and some of the more established ones and, and where, the, where there seems to be a crucial role. Um, I met a guy and, um, you know, essentially his role was kind of the carrier relationships. And he, he, he said, you know, it was it was getting the insurance guys to respect, you know, my team and getting my team to respect the insurance guys. And he said, essentially, I'm the referee and that's the way it works. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I just I just thought it was interesting. And I think like, a lot of those businesses have matured and, and certainly the businesses I'm seeing enter the market have more mature ideas and and you know they've come to the table because there's there's now an ecosystem of insurtechs you know and i think you can look at what the successful ones look like and what and look they're all very different but there, there seems to be a theme of the ones that seem to make it work more collaboratively with the existing market and the incumbent market and see it as utilizing that experience and knowledge and that's there and then just kind of bringing something um, and also tackling specific wins you know specific niches that um is that and, and as to your point earlier about your original idea you know there might be a specific niche but is it a big enough market is it a profitable market yeah and will people pay for it you know we'll pay you know that sort of stuff is a very very <clears throat> so there's a lot of insurance ideas out there and there's a lot of people saying you know that and you know, you are going to see probably an awful lot of companies come and go and fail mm. but that's the nature of startups it's also you know the way mm. that you know the technology has made this sort of stuff. I couldn't have done, we couldn't have set this business up 10 years ago. No. You know, we need the computing power of a nation state 10 years ago mm. to do what we're doing. Mm. You know, that, that, you know, that, 
if you actually look at the cost and power of computing, like halving every year effectively, which is what it's doing, it's just terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you know, the technology we're using at the back end, you know, to store the data that we're storing is a serverless technology by, by Google. Google gave us, you know, many tens of thousands of euros in free compute, um, which we actually, because of the way we, we actually use, we, we, we more or less use compute on demand. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, the comp- we don't get charged when we're not actually using that computer effectively, which is kind of the next level of serverless, the next level of kind of the cloud. It's you know, mm-hmm. somebody else's uptime. Um, we, we struggle to spend that money, even at scale where we, you know, we were ingesting and using data. Yeah. It's so, you know, the cost of this stuff is just falling through the floor. Mm. And the, you know, the next, you know, data, I mean, data is slowly but surely becoming a commodity in my, in my book. So any data plays are, you know, stuff that was really difficult four or five years ago is going to be relatively easy. And if you talk to the data companies that we talk to now, they get that. They get that, you know, they're basically going to be able to charge a lot less for their data. You know, it's becoming a commodity. You know, the big ones, especially, you know, the you know the Moody's and the you know the the uh, etc. The um, say you know the people like Verisk and people like that. The real, the next big kind of value add then is is basically insights from that data and how you make money from that data, and that's the space that we've positioned ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I think that's a really good place to end on because I'm conscious of that we're getting to an hour and. Um, but um, what's um, so? What's next? You said you said sort of family and friends round, um, and then yeah. I mean, we, we next for us is to talk to. Uh, we're out talking to a lot of people. Um, we were involved in plug and play in the US, which we got onto that program, which has introduced us to quite a few American insurers. One of the weird things about the lockdown is it it's kind of shrunk the world completely. So whereas we would have probably stayed away from the states, mm-hmm. um, now it's basically you know, we've been talking to a lot of companies in the east and the west coast of America. Um, we're, talk, we're slowly but surely starting back out talking to the London market with our the dem- we've got demonstrations of our product and what we've built. Um, hopefully sign up, the idea is to sign up one, two, three part, you know, um, pilot programs over the next you know, couple of months and then use, kind of then set up a, start a um, set in place a kind of friends and family round, um, seed round, which is probably going to be, we've had the, quite a few people that are interested in um, in Dublin and we've a number of kind of soft commitments from London and Enterprise Island have basically said, look, we'll back, we'll, we'll back and match any money that you can raise yourselves as well. So wow. we've got that kind of slowly but surely in place. And then hopefully from that, the next thing is a virtuous circle, you know, more customers, you know, hopefully a bit more investment, hire a few more people and just slowly but surely grow from there. Fantastic. And um, if anyone's interested in kind of finding out a bit more, is it is in your space, the best way to contact you uh, via the website, LinkedIn? Or? Yeah, yeah, I mean, we have a, you know, it's describedata.com. You know, we have a button on the, on the you know, we, we book a meeting with us. We'll happily chat with you or just drop us a line. You know, we can, uh, we'll uh, give us a call. You know, all the details, the contact details are there on the website. Wonderful. Brilliant. Michael, thank you so much for spending some time with me. Really appreciate it. That was really interesting. Yeah, that was great. It was very enjoyable. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Listen, have a great day. Thanks, pal. Bye. So that was Michael Crawford of Describe Data, and that was episode eight of the Leadership and Insurance podcast. Um, really enjoyed that one. Great fun. Um, Michael's a, a good guy, as you know, as you can see. Um, really open and honest, and had some great chats um, on and off air actually uh, about the insurance industry and the state of the uh, insure tech market. Um, we've got more of this coming up. We've got some fantastic guests uh, booked in. Um, I'm starting to be a little bit more organised now, so we've got four or five people um, all in the mix, all within the realms 
of insure tech um, and, and, and leadership um, in the kind of innovation space. And innovation is a word that gets battered around. And um, we tackled that on a few episodes, actually, about whether it's the right word. And it's why I've stuck with leadership. So really, this podcast is about leadership and anything that pertains to it. So something innovative with tech, but also could be as simple as, as I've said to a few people, if last year you'd said you'd allow to work, allow all your workers to work from home, you'd be seen as an innovative leader. Um, now it seems like you're managing a crisis. So um, innovation takes many forms and leadership takes uh, many forms as well. So we try and explore all of that. Um, but I hope you found that interesting. I'd really like it if you subscribed or shared or liked or engaged with the content at all. Um, and if there's anything you like or don't like, um, please feel free free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or, of course, Alex at uh, wearefinpro.com. All the best.